Oh. M. Mom! Hey guys, welcome back to Give It To Me Straight, a professional, serious talk show and definitely not just a face. On the show today, we have from season nine in All Stars 4, Miss Pheromone. Oh, hi. Hello, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I hope um, my security is up to par for you because um, whenever I moved here, you made a tweet. Amelia, I announced everyone said move to Vegas and you wasted no time to let me know in the comments about how scary and dangerous it was to live here and how I needed to buy cameras, I needed to buy a gun. And <laughs> I didn't say gun, did I? I, 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 I think you did, I'm pretty sure. But anyway. My, you, I think you had posted a picture like in front of your house or whatever and I was like, oh, she's gonna get robbed now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, luckily every house in Vegas looks exactly the same, but like I photoshopped out the number and everything, but you were still, you're looking out. No, and I had already mm -hmm. met you before, and I was like, I really, really like her. Mm -hmm. Don't want her to get robbed like I did. Y'all, yeah. Vegas is a rough place to live. I mean, it's cheap here for a reason. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I feel like you're, you are a definitely like chaotic good. You know, it's like you mean well. Sometimes it comes off um, a, a, little, a little crazy cuckoo, but, you know, you well, mean well. The intentions are good. What's that expression? Uh, if the shoe fits or... No, that's not what? it. I don't know what I'm trying to say. I am a little crazy. <laughs> but I also feel like the fans, the way the fans react can also sway the perception of a message. For instance, like if you say something that's not very shady and the fans perceive it as shady, all of a sudden it's shady. I, I saw through it. I was like, okay, looking out. Someone, because you actually had someone break into your house whenever you lived in Vegas, right? Yes. Um, I had just moved into my first ever home all by myself with no roommates. It was a four-bedroom um three baths with a pool and hot tub in the backyard, only 2000 a month, y'all, which is crazy. Mm -hmm. And but the downside is you're always in fear for your life. So, well, I never know. was, I was actually really excited about it. And then I had to leave to, um, do a gig. And just in that, like first week I moved in there, the first time I left town, I got robbed the first time. Mm -hmm. Oh my God. If we are working into my robbery, y'all, it took it. the police three days to come mm -hmm. after I called them to tell them my house had been robbed. and Which is crazy, by the way, because I didn't even know, like, maybe they're still in the house hiding somewhere. You know what I mean? Like, you never know. Like, you need a police officer there right away, don't you think? But um, by the time the police had come, they said, oh, so they've left all of your windows unlocked, which usually means that they have a plan to come back. They told you after day three? Yes. Oh. <laughs> and I was like, no, don't say that. So, of course, I had reoccurring nightmares. It terrorized me for years, honestly. Mm -hmm. But you're all good now. Your security seems up to par because you had a friend like me mm -hmm. to fill you in on the dangers of a city yeah. like this. Yeah, we got the turrets installed and everything. And yeah, we're good. We're all set. But funny enough, whenever I moved here, um, I ordered like cameras. Or no, I didn't have, my I didn't have enough money for cameras because I just moved in. You know, U-Haul and all that. I didn't have money, but so I was like, I'll just buy some fake cameras off Amazon for temporary stuff. Right. The Amazon driver delivers it in the box with the label and stuff on the side. It really <laughs> says fake decoy camera and it's just sitting in front of my house. So now if that Amazon driver wanted to rob me, he knows that I have fake cameras. I mean, I got some now, I got real ones now. But at that time I was like, Are you fucking kidding me? The one thing you don't put in like an Amazon bag. That is the funniest thing I've ever heard. Yeah. Like, why, why, why? Anyways, that, <laughs> we made it through. We survived. Yeah. And your place is gorgeous and it feels safe in here. Thank you. Yeah, so, so far. So far. We'll see. We'll see how the interview goes. I might yeah. Make it a little. If you piss me off, I'll have to send my scary men over here. But yeah, we're here today dressed in our finest 2007 scene looks. Because a lot of people don't know, way before Drag Race, before you were a famous drag queen, you were a famous scene kid. On the, in the MySpace days, Cameron Ugg. Oh, there he, he is. is. This is like the quintessential photo that like everyone was catfished by. Yeah. That's this, like the one. That, which is so crazy because this one was out of all my MySpace photo shoots I would do. This one is probably the least effort out of all of them. Mm -hmm. I took this after school in my bathroom in front of the window. Mm -hmm. It is something about it's 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 like the golden ratio. It's like paintings and stuff. Something about right. it. It just registers. I but, I remember 
of all, like there was one MySpace photo shoot I did with my friends where I wanted to be in a bathtub filled with Fruit Loops. Mm-hmm. And we did that photo and it was the messiest, grossest, most horrible experience ever in my whole life, in my whole time of ever modeling or photo shooting or whatever. Like it was the nastiest thing ever. And the photo came out really cute, but like, it's already dis- like when you search Cameron Ugg, you already can't find that photo. Mm-hmm. I can't find that photo. It's, it's lost buried media. in my photo bucket somewhere. I'm sure it's lost media somewhere out there. Someone in my audience is a 31 year old girl who has that photo saved on an old computer, or you know. So it's someone out there. Someone, if y'all have the Fruit Loop photo of Cameron Ugg, listen. If y'all have that fucking photo, that's fine. Listen, if y'all have that photo of me in the Fruit Loop bath, please, please, please. Send it our way. It's out there. Someone will post it. Someone will share it. But no, you were like the quintessential catfish scene kid. Like even my, my partner was catfished by you whenever she was in high school. She got catfished by a fake account using your picture. The catfish thing is is very real because people have literally come to me and shown me the craziest catfish stories. Like there was, I remember a story of this one girl I talked to and she had like dated me for like three or four years and they had gotten so close. And I guess he like reached that point that all catfish get to where they, they can't keep it up anymore. So they like kill themselves off. You know what I mean? Like to, so they don't have to do the account anymore. They can pick a different person or whatever. But uh, after he had like passed away or what, what have you, um, it almost led this girl to commit suicide herself. Because she was so in love. It was like a fucked up Romeo and Juliet type thing. And stories like that were just a dime a dozen because I was almost more famous for being someone that people used to catfish people than I even was on MySpace. Mm. I went a few years without internet in my adolescence, right in the peak of the MySpace era. And I think that kind of gave people the opportunity to just come in and like have free reign with my photos and there was nobody stopping them. And I think that ultimately is what like solidified my like scene moment into scene history, I guess. Mm. <laughs> it, was, it was like your send off where it's just like, okay, you're no longer a human being. You're now just like this poster child, this just stock image, this, you know, you want like almost like a symbol. Like you no longer had like the identity. Cameron Ugg was just like a a martyr. No, yeah. Sometimes it really messed with my head because I couldn't even have like my own Facebook when I came back to the internet because they would just immediately get removed for being an impersonation profile. And then when I would search Cameron Ugg on Facebook, there it would show like 3,500 profiles using Mm -hmm. my photos. Uh, I mean, how do you get a hold on that? Honestly, I had to start drag just to reclaim an identity again, honestly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what do you think was more toxic, though? The drag race fandom in 2017 or the, the scene community in 2007? The scene community. You think scene community? Just oh, yeah. no hesitation? Yeah, I mean, drag race fans will, like, tell you that you're fat and ugly and worthless and to go kill yourself and stuff. But it's different because a lot of times they'll do that from anonymous profiles, Whereas when someone was telling you you're fat and to go die and to go kill yourself on MySpace, it was coming straight from somebody that you probably well liked and respected. Mm. <laughs> so um, that was a little rougher, I think. And mm. also, like, I think with the whole MySpace, especially for me personally, I was I was really young. I was one of the younger people in sort of the internet space that I was in. Mm. So, um, you know, there was some very adult drama that I had gotten wrapped up in here and there that I, I don't think my little brain was equipped enough to, to handle yeah. appropriately. But so it, in that regard, it was more difficult than Drag Race fans. Mm-hmm. Honestly, Drag Race fans, I mean... If you can get on their good side, they're amazing. Mm-hmm. And I'm on their good side, I think. So I love you guys. Yeah. For now. <laughs> yeah, for right now. Well, it's because you were off the internet for a couple of years. You know, yeah. But now that you're back, you know. I feel like when you take a break from the internet, they forget how much they fucking hate your face and are tired of seeing you. And then yeah. they start to miss you. 
I feel like people always look back with rose-tinted glasses, but you know, as but now that you're back online and posting a little bit more, they're gonna remember why. You know, they'll remember. They'll come back around to the hate train, but <laughs> they'll, they'll be back. Well, golly, I really ruffled some feathers with that TikTok ranking video. Yeah, the you, Drag Race ranking video. You went in on the girls. How do you not know who Jax was? She's a staple. I still don't know who she is. What what season was she on? Uh, fifteen. Oh, so one. the most recent one. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I, I don't think it was because you didn't know who she was. I think it's because you knew who someone else on the cast was. You knew another, you knew the season 15 girl that went home even sooner and had less followers. And but to be real, I did not know who that girl was either, but I just kind of panicked and put her in a spot, really. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so the real shade is that you were negative towards most of them, so... I mean, was I negative or was I just a little girl that just didn't know much about these people? We'll call him A, we'll call him B. You know, it's okay though. Jax or, Jax is her name? Yeah. Jax or Robin Fierce. I'm sure y'all are great and I'm sorry and I hope that you don't hate me and maybe one day we'll meet at a show and be friends. Mm -hmm. Be best friends. But with the scene community, it was obviously like really toxic with like body shaming but at the same time yeah. it was also very progressive with like sexuality and gender expression so yeah all things considered do you think the scene era was um, a more net positive or net negative you know it's the impact on society i actually would say it would be more of a net positive because the hairspray industry as as egotistical and vain and toxic and stuff as a lot of things in scene culture, especially on MySpace was, I feel like at the end of the day, it was a safe place for people who were different. And like, it was a haven for me as a young queer kid. Whereas like, you know, they pick apart every part of your appearance, but like you were never, you know, bashed for being gay or or even trans, even there was trans icons on MySpace. So, um, like, I.E. Chris Crocker and um, Johnny Boy XO and uh, Izzy Hilton. Um, so there was, some, there was some really iconic trans representation in the MySpace world. And I, so I, I think it, it gave people an outlet to be creative with their looks and with their HTML and their MySpace. I mean, how many coders do we think that there are that do mm. HTML full-time now because they were a MySpace kid, you know? All, all the tech-savvy people. There's so many trans people that are in tech and, like, DJing that probably all stem from, like, the little world. Yeah, like, um, Aisha Rodica, I feel mm. like, was a MySpace girl. Yeah. But what was it like, though, being, like, going from being someone that was somewhat a part of this community to being, like, the poster child of it? Did you recognize that as it was happening? You know, I don't think I've ever felt like the poster child of it. But I guess that's also because during the whole MySpace era, I was friends with all the other big people in MySpace because we were all in the same groups. Hmm. Um, and forums together that were very exclusive that you, you know, had to get approved and let in over a whole process. Yeah, no sense. And so I was constantly, like, associated with and friends with people that were, like, way more famous than me in that era. But I think going back to what I was saying earlier, none of them disappeared off the social media for a while. So none of them had the same uncontrollable overload of fake profiles being made. And I honestly think those fake profiles is what made that Cameron Ugg image famous. Like, and I feel like it happened almost after MySpace and and even when Tumblr started to kind of fade off, like I, I, it just kept going and going, especially like once I started doing drag and left Cameron Ugg behind and, um, deleted my old Twitter handle and you know the more Cameron Uggs just came like they just got to take over and have free reign and just live their little yeah even me like whenever I was in high school like I wasn't like one of the scene kids and I went to a small podunk 1200 population town in Arkansas and I saw your pictures like I saw them like like fake profiles of people saying they're in the next town over and it was like your picture when you were cast on Drag Race and they were like, oh, it's one of the old scene kids, 
and I saw the pictures, I was like, oh, I've seen that before. And so you went way beyond the realm of what was in the intended audience. Yeah. Back then, like, like so many people knew who you were, but you were making no money off of it. Zero. Do you feel like you're kind of going in a renaissance with that right now? The same things so happening all over again? Because everyone knows who you are, but you're not making money. God, you're so mean. I feel like a throwback. Um, no, you know, to, I know your question's probably kind of a joke, but like it's actually kind of true. I mean, um, I had a really bad falling out with um a certain merch company that I think if y'all know, you know. And that kind of like traumatized me out of doing merch. So in my absence from having merch, there has been all this fake merch where like there actually are a lot of people making money off of me as we speak probably and i'm i just don't fucking care mm. anymore <laughs> but talking about how the um the scene community was a lot more like progressive with like gender expression and sexuality and stuff um it also allowed you to kind of explore your own like femininity and there was like times on stickham where you were wearing party city wigs and your mom's makeup not necessarily catfishing, but kind of, um, what's the word? Trying to see if you can like trick people. In no, a exactly. Sense. I wanted to test the the fishiness, the water. Yeah. So, no. do, do you think that was, would you consider that to be like early Farah, or is that just something else entirely? Like, do you think that was like planting the seeds for your drag career to come? Well, you know, I have loved dressing in women's clothing since I could walk. So, mm. like, was it early Farah or? Was it just another time of my life where the truth was coming out, you know? Mm -hmm. Just feeling fan. Because I, I, I know you loved was... to do the sneaky stick am, though. Like, I really did. D did you find out from the emo diaries? Uh, you not... find, how do you know that? I don't know. It's, it, <laughs> I, do you I, know I honestly that? don't know where I found this info. But it was, a lot of times it was like your friends are putting you in it. So was it very kind of like, oh my gosh, guys, stop. Or yes. Like, it was very that. <laughs> like, oh my God, like, this this feels so uncomfortable. What are you doing? Like, oh, oh, mm -hmm. oh. But no, when I would do the stick cam, I did my own makeup for that. My mom had this, this little pressed powder that had so much coverage to it. I have no idea what it was, but it, you could like fully conceal five o'clock shot. I mean, if I knew where this powder was now, I would totally use it because it was so powerful, but I was able to con fully conceal the under eyes in the five o'clock shadow area, put on a little mascara, a little bit of liner in the waterline and a little black party city wig and, a you know, five megapixel webcam camera and we're set. And that was your first audition video. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> like whenever you were in like the scene community and like posting online, like Cameron mm -hmm. Ugg, did the people in that community know you were intimate at that time? Or is that something that... Oh, intimate. Yeah. Oh, I thought you were saying intimate. No, I really did hold off on telling my audience that I was gay for a while. So you were catfishing as a straight person. Well, You were appropriating my culture. We also have to think about that, like, two-year period where I didn't have any internet. So I feel like once I came back, like, Tumblr era... Then it was like gay, 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 gay. Mm -hmm. But so you decided. I think I I was gay, 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 gay in the MySpace groups. But I, you know, I really don't know when. So it was probably like you were posting online, teen heartthrob for all these girls. You disappear and then you come back as gay icon. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> I need to like meditate on all of this and try and get my memories back. Mm -hmm. I did so many drugs in high school that like, I just, there is blocks of memories that aren't there. Mm -hmm. But if we keep talking about it, they, they'll, they, they come back. I it'll, think. it'll unlock. Yeah. yeah. Who's, who's giving you drugs in high school? Were you just, like stealing, stealing pills? Or? Who was giving me drugs in high school? Um, I was finding them myself. I, I also, you know, since I was kind of an internet sensation as a teenager, a lot of adults were my friends. Like, I was mm -hmm. friends with a lot of kids from ages 18 to, like, 25 when I was, like, 16. And so there was never a hard time getting booze, cigarettes, um, weed. You're probably yeah. just, just the, the coolest 11th grader. 
I think I, like, I had a mini peak in 11th grade, 17. Mm. <laughs> also the year I dropped out. Woo! Stay out of school, kids. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, no, uh, 17 was a crazy year. I was doing, I was at these crazy adult parties. I remember partying with really big lead singers of really big bands and just really adult situations for sure. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the acceptance that you received online didn't always translate in person. As you said, you mentioned like bullying in school. And is it true that you got stabbed in eighth grade? Yep. What? With a pencil. What happened? <laughs> oh my Why? God. It's actually, it all happened over a girl named Maddie. <laughs> That's so crazy. Um, so I was friends with this girl named Maddie and she was kind of a popular girl. And me and her just had some petty fight. I think about jeans, wearing, arguing over who could wear a pair of jeans. Something, you know, something stupid that eighth graders fight about. Mm -hmm. And so, like, we had a falling out, but it was one of those falling outs where, like, we knew we'd be friends again. We just, like, needed a break to hate each other for a little bit. Yeah. Anyways, there was this kid that was obsessed with her. And um, he thought, I guess, that if he hurt me, then he would win her over. And the crazy thing was, is I was actually walking with her in the hallway when it happened. And we, because we'd already made up, because it wasn't that big of a deal. Mm -hmm. Like, it was not that big of a fight. And so we're walking with each other in the hallway, and he comes up from behind me and stabs me with a pencil. Got shanked. Yeah. And then threw me into a locker, and police had to get involved, and then I had to get asked if I wanted to press charges, and then this kid's mom, like, called me, begging me, crying, and I just felt bad and didn't want to go to court or do anything. I just wanted it to be over, and so I didn't press any charges. Damn. I mean, I also was almost stabbed in the fifth grade with a pair of scissors. Why is this a frequent through line in your life? People have tried to kill me my whole life. Like, actually, or like... Yeah. Okay, let, let's count the instances. Should we go to... Okay, home? we we can. Like, so, lightly, lightly. Just give, give, like, a rough, like, a tally. Fifth grade, eighth grade, tenth grade. Tenth grade. Tenth grade, I had a um, really scary person that would call me every night at three o'clock in the morning, sending me... Anonymous death threat emails, phone calls, to the point where I stayed in a hotel for a week because they kept saying they were going to come in the middle of the night of a certain week and kill me. Um, and then once someone tried to kill me in L.A. in 2015 at the Ramada in West Hollywood. <laughs> we don't have to get into that. Um, and then amongst the numerous death, numerous vivid death threats I received from Ariana Grande Gate... Mm. It's been too many times for it to be... You think, you think maybe it's something you did? Common denominator? Have you, looked, have you ever looked inward? I should have never came for Valentina at that reunion. Honestly. Team Valentina. <laughs> whenever whenever uh, in eighth grade, though, like whenever you were like stabbed with a pencil, did you go... Hmm. <laughs> what was the name? Probably. Was it? Probably, probably some. Yeah. I, or it was probably something like, ah! <laughs> something really cringy and awful. I, or I don't even, you know, I might have just been silent. I think I was just like, this is it. Were you silent or were you silenced? I was silenced. <laughs> Is it, is it just because of, like, your sexuality is why you were bullied? Is it Was that the main reason for it? Yeah, because I was one of those kids, like, I was pretty much forced out of the closet in, like, 7th or 8th grade. So, like, I was pretty much, for many years, like, the only out kid in my grade. So... Your mom was obviously very supportive of you now. Was she always supportive of you, like, all throughout this time? Or was it, like, a process? I, I think... Me and her had a really hard time getting along until I came out to her because I think she was, like, annoyed that I didn't come out to her as long as, like, mm. she used to, like, oh, she used to just try and force it out of me sometimes. And it was so 
exhausting and scary. Just while we're uh, talking about your childhood, your birthday actually falls on September 11th, which means that September 11th, 2001 was your eighth birthday. Mm-hmm. Not to age you, but like, what was that birthday like for you? Do you remember that day? So mm-hmm. I'm sure that has some effect on the party. Yeah. So I was still in private school. So before my father passed away, my mom had me and my brother in this little private school. Um, it was really fun. It was. It wasn't a religious private school. It was more of like a private school for like more special kids, I guess. But we had like a petting zoo on the playground and horseback riding in the back and swimming pool. It was a really cool place. Oh, you're a child of luxury. Okay. Right. Until until poverty hit and we got yanked out of that and thrown into public school, which was a whole nother story. But um, so I was still at that really fun little school. And so I guess their MO for that day was to not panic the kids. So unlike I've heard from other people, like who's, who, whose teachers like live broadcasted it in class, like that did not happen. Like no one at no, none of the kids at my school knew that a huge terrorist attack had happened at all. Mm-hmm. And my mom picked me up from school that day. And when we got back to the house, she like told me I needed to go take a whole bunch of stuff out um, to the garage before I could come inside. And I remember being like, why is she going to make me do this on my birthday? Like, what is wrong with her? And I like walked in and my whole family was there and said, surprise. And I got a puppy. That was it? And then in the background, the World Trade Center footage was like on the TV. But like, but you have, I had a puppy, have- so... Okay, so yeah, that your takeaway from that day. Was- I, it didn't hit me the reality of the situation probably until the next day or the day after because my mom didn't want it to ruin my birthday. So my knowledge of what was going on was very minimal. Mm-hmm. So yeah, once the reality set in that thousands of people were like devastatingly murdered on my birthday, it was a hard pill to swallow. Mm-hmm. And still to this day, I feel weird celebrating my actual birthday on the 11th. Like I'll usually do the weekend before, the weekend after, or every day in September except the 11th. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't, I don't know. I just, yeah. I feel, I get it, really it, sad yeah. on that day because the, uh, the, the whole country like feels weird that day because yeah. like, it's still kind of a, a soft wound. So circling back to high school, you mentioned dropping out. Why did you drop out of high school? Threats against my life, uh, bullying that got physical, that was no longer just words. Those kinds of things started to really freak my mom out. Like she, we would literally be walking in the hallways to talk to a guidance counselor or whatever together. And someone would scream faggot at me in the hallway, like in front of her. So like it was no longer something I, that she heard about from teachers or from me or whatever. Like she was seeing it firsthand. And when they had said... That if I, well, if you don't want your son to be bullied, maybe we need to have a conversation with him about conforming a little bit. And my mom, for whatever reason, just couldn't stand that idea. And I mean, it is kind of iconic of her, but she was like, no, like y'all said you have a zero tolerance for bullying. Not a, if you're getting bullied, change everything about yourself. Yeah. So she pulled me out of the school against my will as a fuck you to the school. And then I just did like a little at-home homeschooling thing. It's not that your mom didn't uh, have you compromise your brand. (laughs) I know! Isn't that sweet? Like you had 50,000 friends on MySpace. You can't change now. Exactly. Too far in. Way too far in. And I, you know, like... I. I do love that she that she had that mindset, but I do like, I don't know, like it'll always haunt me that I didn't just finish it. You know, mm-hmm. it kind of feels like we let them win in a weird way, but like also we didn't because the school ends up. You know, when kids pull out of the school, like I think the state like funds them less or something. Mm-hmm. If if y'all have kids like and you need to make a statement on your school, just pull them out. I think it works. Yeah, I think. That's the answer to a lot of stuff. Just drop out. Steve. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and I... It's like the Queensland Drag Race got it figured out, too. You start dropping out because it affects them more than it does you, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Life hack. Life hack. Quit. Just give up. Stop. <laughs> Hang it up. Leaving high school, at what point did you start drag? Oh, my God. Well, 
So as we discussed previously, like I was cross-dressing all throughout high school, all throughout middle school, all throughout elementary school. Like I never stopped cross-dressing. Like I, any, every Halloween I was a girl, um, just any opportunity I could get to dress as a girl my whole life I took it. I was just, any excuse I could have. Mm-hmm. Um, I started realizing, you know, oh wow, like there's this whole world where it's like, you're free to dress like this all you want and have fun with it. And I had already followed and been friends with Vanity on MySpace. I wouldn't say real friends, but like MySpace friends, like where you fall. That's basically what we called following. So I was aware of um, Vanity and I was aware of Lady Bunny and I was aware of Jackie Beat because of Jackie Beat's YouTube videos. Mm-hmm. So... Before I ever even watched Drag Race, I had, and RuPaul, I mean, of course, that goes without saying, obviously, RuPaul almost didn't even count in my mind. Um, So, yeah, I I guess just as soon as I could, I I was putting on a wig and heels and going out to every gay bar being like, hey, please, give me a chance, please. So just like leaving high school, turning 18, and just me just going out to the clubs and just trying to find drag. Yep, I had, um, I had a girlfriend that worked at Rich's in Houston, Texas, which is a, it's still around. It's one of the oldest mm-hmm. nightclubs in in Houston. And um, she stole me one of the confiscated IDs out of the security room. And I used that as a fake ID for like three years. <laughs> Until it expired. Until this fucking bitch sold me out to all the gay bars in Austin and got me blacklisted until I turned 21. Damn. Thanks a lot, Cynthia Lee Fontaine. <laughs> no, the funny thing was that she was like the one girl that had my back in the whole city. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> she really is so sweet. I just did, love did, her. Did you ever have a, someone do the thing where they hold the dollar out and then take it right before you grab it? Nobody did that to me until after Drag Race. Mm. What is that? Uh, I think for you it's karma because you did that to people on RuneScape back when you used to scam people. Where do you find this out? Because you, people would wait till you're doing a trade and then right when you got the item, you'd take the money away and then log off. Right? Yeah. Did, RuneScape. Is your old Woo! RuneScape still active? Like, do you have all that stolen stuff just sitting? Oh, I got away? my karma on that. Before I had, before. I think what led me to quit RuneScape is that I had everything of mine um, scammed off of me mm-hmm. in a similar way mm-hmm. or something along those lines. How did you, where did I talk about the RuneScape at? Where did you find that? Mm-hmm. I, I do so much like information finding. I don't even remember the sources. I don't cite my sources. I get the information, I put it in a note and then I retain it and then the source is gone. Well, yeah, one of my like, craziest little secrets is that I still play old school RuneScape sometimes. Oh my gosh, that's so crazy. You're so crazy. I am just so crazy. Is that, was that your first time like scamming men or do you have a history of that? (laughs) It trained me for the, for the scammer I'd soon become. Mm. (laughs) There's been times where you were essentially homeless. Did you ever like do any seedy things to survive, whether it be like scamming or theft or... Obviously, you don't condone anything, but, you know, just survival reasons. You know, I, well, I was living in a pickup truck with two other gay men for, like, six months when I was 19 or 20. So we were homeless together. I mean, three people living in a pickup truck is, like, as homeless as you can possibly get. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a mobile home studio. Well, and then during that time, I dabbled in, like, phone sex operating and um, other kinds of, like, online sex sort of themed stuff. Like, um, used I used to shoplift until I got caught stealing a pair of pink rain boots from Payless. Mm. And that traumatized me so deeply. I never stole anything ever again. <laughs> I feel like I feel like light shoplifting doesn't even count because everyone has a story of that, pretty much. Yeah, All no, I feel issues. like in my like darkest of brokest of times, like I I still had some form of dignity and integrity, and maybe a lack of creativity. Because mm-hmm. uh, if I couldn't afford something, I just went without it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I can tell you. 
anyone listening, if you're in a bind, be careful, obviously, but go to your Facebook, go to the message requests and go to the hidden requests and find men that have been messaging you over and over for all of eternity and give them a little message back. You never know when one of them might buy you a pair of Christian Louboutin daffodils. Mm -hmm. Or just keep your uh, Amazon wish list active. Nobody does that anymore. If you say you want it, they don't want to give it to you anymore. Damn. But no, the first pair of Louboutins I ever bought came from somebody on Facebook Messenger that had no photo of themselves that had been, I guess, just saying, hey, 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 over and over again. And one day I was like so bored and I was looking for someone to order me a pizza because I was starving to death and I was Mm. so broke. And I knew that those men in your message request sometimes will order you a pizza if you're nice to them. And um, I guess I was a beggar. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, no. Okay, so what ended up happening was I responded to him and he asked me what my shoe size was. He wanted to get me a pair of shoes. I was like, I don't want shoes. I, I want food. I'm so hungry and small and scared. But I was like, oh, what the hell? So I gave him my shoe size. And then I didn't think about it. And a couple weeks later, he was like, head to this address, go to the concierge and ask, uh, get a pack. I left a package there for you to get picked up. And I was like, huh? And I, my friend picks me up. We go to get it together. We both are like, what, 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 what could he possibly, what kind of shoes? Like what is, what's happening? And I get there. They it give me the, the package. Rain boots. <laughs> we get, uh, I get the package. We run, I bring it to my friend's car. We're in this parking stru- like garage and we open this box and it is a literal pair of $1,500 Christian Louboutins. Right fresh in the box with the receipt, everything. Uh, and you didn't have to do anything seedy or scary to, do, to get it. I mean, yeah. I thought for sure I was going to be showing up to some dark, scary place that I was going to be kidnapped and, you know, killed or whatever. But no, he ended up being a really, like, normal guy. By the time I saw his actual face, he ended up being really hot. We dated for a while. I fell in love with him. He bought me several more pairs of Louboutins. But then once things started to get real, he realized he could never be with someone like me because he was straight and this and that. And he ghosted me forever. And I have not spoken to him since. So The one that got away. Yeah. Shane, if you're watching, I miss ya. But on the topic of both drag and homelessness, whenever you auditioned for Drag Race, when season nine was filming, you essentially were homeless. Yes, it wasn't when I auditioned for Drag Race. I had a home when I auditioned. Mm. It was when I got the call to be on Drag Race. I had just been thrown out of the place I was living and all my stuff thrown in the desert. And I had all of my stuff in storage in different friends' garages. And um, I was basically living... I, I moved in with my boyfriend, kind of, who was living in a room for free with this older lady... So I had a place to like lay my head at home, but I was very much displaced, <laughs> to say the least. And I almost said no to Drag Race because of it, because I was like, there's just no way I'm going to be able to pull this together. Like, honestly, without um, Chase and uh, Sean Magby, who I don't know if you've met, she's a drag queen here in Vegas. She was she kind of took me under her wing when I moved here and was like my first ever version of like a drag mother. And between both of them, they really helped me pull everything together because they were just like you can't say no to this like if you say no they'll never ask you back and I I just was like I just don't know I'm gonna do it like I was just so lost I was in such a dark place and my self-confidence was so shattered like my motivation for staying each episode was to have food and a bed to myself to sleep in like Mm -hmm. that was my motivation I was like I don't have to worry about my living situation as long as I can just make it another episode, make it another episode, make it another episode. And But at the same time, too, it also was like a hindrance because you were trying to get ready for Drag Race while being homeless. You don't start the competition on your best foot. So Right. Just, well, your confidence isn't there. Your funds aren't there. Um, well, we saw that. Uh, <laughs> but between high school and Drag Race, you, you went through so much. Was there, was there a certain catalyst for all these like negative things that were happening to you? Or there was, was a just... few catalysts. So I would say... The first mistake was this friend I had named Sarah, who was 25 when I was 17, but for some reason was 
wanting to be my best friend and hang out with me all the time. And then I, there was a time period where I didn't realize she had done this, but she had made a escorting profile in my name without, with my photos without telling me. And then told me I was going with her to a job one night. And, but really it was someone she had signed up. She basically essentially trafficked me. So she, uh, at 17, when I was 18, um, she was like, Oh, this guy says, if you, if you sleep with him, he'll give you like $900. And I was like, Oh my God, you know, 18 and broke. I was like, $900. Sure. I'll do it. But then afterwards, she kept the money and was like, well, you owe me for this, this, and this, and this. And she kept every single dollar of it mm-hmm. and um, kind of had this power over me thinking that I always constantly owed her. But really, she was trafficking me and making profit off of me. And I, it wasn't until I started seeing my sex therapist, Amy, who, when I was explaining that to her, she was like, you know, you were trafficked, babe. That's trafficking. And me and her had our falling out when she finally like got really drunk one day and had it in her mind that she wanted to beat me until I couldn't move and um, busted through my bedroom door that I had locked with, she used a knife to pick the lock and um, while I was on the phone with the police and she was just saying she was gonna kill me and the police got there and she acted like none of that happened and put on this whole other personality that was really scary. And while I was outside talking to the police, she went and hid every valuable thing of mine that she liked in her bedroom where I wasn't allowed to go to get my things. So she robbed me. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, as soon as I left that friendship, I ended up in a whole other friendship just like that, where it was another older person. This time, this person was 31, I believe, when I was 18, 19. Um, and it just almost the exact same story happened over again. She didn't traffic me, but she, there was times where she beat me so bad I had to go to the hospital. She broke my hand. Um, she was also a drag queen as well. And she would get really upset if I was afforded opportunities that she didn't have. So there was always this pressure of every time I got asked to do a big gig or something, I felt like I had to include her. But then once I would get them to agree to book her to be included in the gig, she would have a big crazy drunk meltdown at the event and get us both fired from everything. So, um, honestly me moving to Vegas was me trying to run as far away from all of those people that I had met in Austin as I possibly could, because I just, it was just too dark. It's hard to feel confident in your decisions when you are being held emotionally hostage by the people around you. And when I moved to Vegas, I, I literally moved in with one of those scary strangers from my Facebook messenger. I didn't care what I had to do. I had to get out of there. And this guy was like, oh, well, you know, you can live with me and, you know, I'll charge you this much a month and I'll keep it really low so you can get on your feet and this and that. And I thought, oh my God, like, I can't believe someone's showing me this like grace, but come to find out I, I, I'm moving my stuff in and he has photos of me by his bed Mm. and um he was ultimately just extremely obsessed with me secretly and um when I started actually dating someone for the first time since living in Vegas that's when he flipped out and threw all my stuff in the desert and that was when yeah yeah you mentioned also too like that therapist like help you through a lot of stuff but that same therapist is um no longer with us because she was actually murdered by her boyfriend, right? An ex. An ex. Yeah. So I started seeing Amy in 2018 after filming um, All Stars 4. And um, I had came to Vegas because I used to fly here to get my hair done. And that's when um, I was drugged, kidnapped, and um, sexually assaulted for 10 hours and uh, barely made it out alive. And that really messed with me. And it was only, I think in November, so about a month and a half later was when the first episode of All Stars 4 came out and I had to like Mm -hmm. 
experience the fall being put in the show and that being what everyone talked about. And they asked me if I was okay with that fall airing, but they worded it in a way they were like, I was like, well, I would like for it not to. And they were like, well, there's just so much footage of everyone talking about it. it's going to be next to impossible for us to edit it out. So it was basically like, um, they made me feel like I had the choice, but it didn't matter what I chose. They were going to air it no matter what, like they had already decided. So anyways, um, that's when my psychiatrist said that my psyche bow, I asked him if he had recommendations for a therapist because I was really going through it. I was feeling very suicidal, very, very depressed. I was you know, obviously all of that made me spiral into drinking and drugs and numbing myself and running from my problems and finding the next party so that I could just like escape those things that uh, happened to me. And um, I had told him what I had been through and he was like, you know, this Amy's going to be perfect for you. Um, And so I started seeing her and she was perfect for me. And God, it just like makes me so sad because that was the first time I had ever invested in my own mental health care. And it couldn't have been with someone more perfect to help me with those things. Like it, it also it wouldn't help too having that paranoia of people around you and then it literally happens to someone closest to you. It's, I feel like it just it doesn't help. It kind of compounds. Well, because, you know, Amy, for a lot of us as her clients, she was someone that we went to because we felt unsafe around men. Mm-hmm. We felt unsafe. Most of, most of our issues, I mean, if you have any kind of sexual assault trauma in any capacity, if you're seeing a sex therapist, there's probably... Um, some darkness revolving your relationship with men in some capacity. And she was kind of that person that helped us feel safe again. And then she was taken away from us by the very thing she helped us feel safe around. Mm-hmm. Do you want to take a second? I'm good. I think I just need... Just take a second. We'll be right back. I always think I'm done crying about that, but then every time. I mean, it's not something you like always like think about or it gets brought up, you know? It was all I thought about for two years. Her kill, her murderer was just, had a whole televised trial the last month or two. Mm-hmm. And he was just found guilty this week. Also, it's like, it's fresher because of like everything mm-hmm. going on. Yeah. As you were saying before, uh, something that was almost like a constant in a lot of these negative situations you were in was like all the drugs and alcohol. And was it after seeing your therapist that led you to your sobriety? No, I think it was her death that led me to sobriety. Um, But no, when she died, it was on Valentine's Day, 2020. And so it wasn't even a month later before we went into lockdown. Mm -hmm. And then it wasn't just a few months later that people I started to know were dying from this COVID disease and a few months after that, my grandmother passed away. And so, and then I was so broke and impoverished because all the gigs that I had lined up for 2020 had been canceled and there was so much uncertainty and it was so scary. And like, I think just all of that just became too much. And that is really where I felt a major shift in my relationship with alcohol, especially like as selfish as it sounds like, All I wanted during that pandemic was to talk to her, you know, like Mm. I just needed some help. Um, And people were like, well, just get a new therapist. And it's like, you you don't just, I couldn't Mm. still to this day. I don't have therapy. Isn't just yelling into a void. It's like having connection having someone you trust. And I was, in the deepest depths of my alcoholism, I was so, so unhappy. There wasn't a day in 2020 and even 2021 that I didn't think about killing myself. Like I, I I already had it all planned out. It's really sad. I, I was just ready to go there. I didn't feel like there was anything left for life anymore. Like I, I'm actually like so proud of myself and so impressed with myself that I'm in such a good headspace now because I really never thought that I could ever feel happiness again. 
was this uh, like all this was this all this happening just right before you took your social media hiatus? I slowed down on social media after Ariana Grande Gate at the tail end of 2019, like September, I think it was, late September 2019, mm. because that was just a huge wake up call for me. And it really honestly scared me a lot. And it really made me not feel safe on the internet anymore. I'm so glad I was able to talk to Amy about that when that happened. But it wasn't even, what, six months later that she was gone mm. and the pandemic happened. And, you know, I mean, like, I'm the kind of person, like, I want to post on social media. And if I look happy, I want it to be because I'm authentically happy. Mm. I don't feel good about myself pretending to be something I'm not. Mm -hmm. I, I, I knew that I was so mentally unstable. I could feel how mentally unstable I was. And I was like, if I am active on social media while I feel like this, I will say and do things that I'll never be able to come back from. I don't trust myself enough to not take things to dark places. I mean, Y'all, all of y'all watching at home, y'all know how crazy I was on Twitter in 2020 and 2021. I came for every single girl that did anything in public. Like I, you know, I was, and that was already negative. It might've been fun for y'all's viewers and Drag Race fans, but cause it's fun, juicy stuff. But like, I was so miserable and I was very unhappy. And it, it, those things don't come from someone that is experiencing love or self-love or anything like that. So it's not a happy person. So <laughs> Like, I, I don't want to deviate away from the serious topics that we're having to talk about Drag Race, but I bring it up because it, it was like a huge monumental thing and it's a huge impact on your life. But also, too, when you did come back, thinking this is going to be my redemption to have it be an even more negative experience than the first time. Yeah. I have such good memories about season nine. Like, season nine was one of my favorite things I've done in my life. Like, I mean, I'm still, I still love all the other girls from my season so much, even if I don't talk to them, even if I have beef with them at any time period. Um, (laughs) At the end of the day, like, I love those girls so much. It was such a special opportunity to be there. I felt unanimously, all the just eliminations were justified. Everything felt fair. Everything felt real. Um... It was one of the most beautiful experiences of my life. So there was no amount of warning me that other Rue girls could have done, which they did, to not go to All-Stars. I was going to go. And I was like, mm. you know, I'm going to be the... They're, they're not going to fuck me over. They love me. Because they had just flown me out to meet Christina Aguilera. They had her impersonate me on season 10 and do her, oh, Rue. Like, I was just like, oh, they would never do me wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but what was my big wake-up call was that All-Stars 4 was almost entirely all VH1 production. There was very few World of Wonder people there. Mm-hmm. Weirdly. Um, there wasn't, if there was, they weren't ones that I knew of before. It was very, very, very was, different. I feel like your run on All-Stars kind of created this uh, conception of you that you were like this delusional, clumsy, whiny person, but you were just delusional and whiny. Do you feel like you were misrepresented when you went back to All-Stars? The whininess is fine. I, I can always live with that. And I, I think that going into All-Stars in any capacity, you have to have some form of delusion. Mm-hmm. But one thing that pissed me the fuck off about All-Stars 4 was I was trying so hard to make my opening line, the highlight of season nine is back. I wanted it so bad. I We recorded it in three different wordings We I, over and over. And then right before I was about to leave that booth, they were like, can we get you to say one more? And I was like, oh, sure, if it'll get me out of here. And they were like, can you just say the crybaby's back? <laughs> me doing that one little take. I had no idea. The hardest thing about the talent number fiasco was that when I was in line doing dress rehearsals, I heard the other girls get three, four, five, even six playthroughs of their music. And then when they got to me, they only told me that I could have two quick run-throughs of it, which was not what I had experienced towards the end of the girls, but I guess because I was at the end of the line, they had less time allotted, whatever. But that shouldn't be my problem. Like, we, y'all 
are sitting here telling us how you want this contest or whatever to be as fair as possible, but y'all don't actually care. And I remember when I did mine, I, I felt off about the placement of where I wanted everything and where I was throwing my items because Sasha Colby actually choreographed that routine, but she choreographed it in like a room, maybe a little smaller than this one. So I had to adjust the choreo for the size of the big old drag race stage. And um, they were like, well, that's just it. That's all the, that's all the tries you get. And I kind of threw a fit about it and they were like, well, here's an iPod. You can go practice this in the corner over there. And they put me in a corner by a bunch of computers that had a bunch of wires on the ground and were telling me to rehearse my burlesque performance with earbuds in my ears with an iPod shuffle where every time I was taking a glove off or something, the earbuds were flying out of my ears. And I, like, so at that point I was already like, I just don't feel very good about this. And then of course, during that dress rehearsal, they're supposed to take down where everything is supposed to be, all your props. Both of my takes, they didn't have the props in the right spot where it was where it was supposed to be for my for my choreography. So in my mind, I'm getting paranoid and feeling like they're trying to set me up to get me to fuck up, to get me to go home. And like that's what is so messed up about this whole experience with All Stars for me is that I feel like I was just taken advantage of and used for storylines. Like I didn't feel like I got a real fair chance to really show my talents or anything. And I mean, even in the episode I got eliminated in, they kept showing a clip of me doing this dance move when that dance move, what like they just kept repasting the same clip in that performance to make me look bad. But like, there was no reason why I should have been. I, I will die on this hill. When I look at like Gia Gunn's performance, Manila's performance. I mean, there were several other girls in the girl group challenges that were way worse than me and Moni Cart. I actually don't even understand how Mo got in the bottom that episode either. It's just so weird, y'all. All-Stars 4 was so weird. And Every girl that I've talked to that was on All Stars 4 with me, we all felt like it was really, really weird. Um, so, yeah, that didn't help with my mental um, turmoil at all. But in, in these like, past couple of years, like, especially with taking like social media hiatuses and all the stuff you were going through, like you spent a lot of time like reflecting and now you're starting to come back to social media. But like, what's changed for you in the past few years? Well, in 2019, unbeknownst to my like following, that's when I had made the decision to um, live my life as a woman. Was and that like a long time coming or was there something that helped you come to that realization? It was a forever coming, I really do think. Um, the, the times in my life where I tried to suppress my trans identity, it was because I felt if I ever did it, I would never be on Drag Race. I'd never be successful. I'd never have... I'd never be able to have a job again. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. back in my day, like the trans people that were brave enough to be open and out and stuff were very, you know, ostracized from society in my perception, at least. Um, so when you're young, you don't really know the full extent of the gay community or whatever, but, mm -hmm. but no. So like I, and I remember one of the things that made me so viral on my season, you know, what got my cosmopolitan video, the, all those views, was that I had a very dramatic male to female transformation. I feel like that's where a lot of the fascination with drag is stemmed from, is seeing like um, a man turn into like a hot girl. And so I felt like if I had taken away that part that I wouldn't ever, ha my dreams would never come true. And um, it, it just, all these really shallow superficial things holding me back from it, that's sad to look back on. Um, but I, th I think what my breaking point was where I like, could not take it anymore was um, having a male persona felt more like drag than having to do drag. And that was when I just like couldn't do it anymore. Like I literally, I was like, I, if I have to buy one more pair of men's pants or figure out what kind of, jackets and accessories like trying to figure out how to be a cute boy was so much harder for me and came so much more unnaturally and to the point where it was like I wish I could just go out and drag right now like 
I thought of having to dress up as a boy is just so stressful to me. Like it just, it stressed me out so much. And I resented every masculine feature about my whole life. I, my, my whole life. Like I've always resented my facial hair. I've always, you know, like I knew, I remember at age three and four and five wanting to sit down to pee because that's how girls did it. And like telling my mom I was going to be a girl when I grew up and like all those kinds of things. Like it just, I, it was always just there, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so I, I, I just needed to feel free. They, it got to the point where like drag wasn't just a career. It wasn't just like a hobby, but like, it was almost like your equilibrium. Like you felt more. It was the only time I could like really feel at home in my body. Mm -hmm. With you coming out like now, how, how long were you kind of going through this journey? Cause obviously there's like when you started transitioning like yourself and then also too, there's also like whenever you mentally were transitioning for doing it publicly and physically. I told a bunch of my closest friends in 2019. I didn't end up telling my mother or any of my family about it until after my therapist died in 2020. So I don't ever feel like there was a shift mentally, per se, like transition-wise, because I've always had a girl mind. I always have. It was always just this feminine energy in my brain yeah. forever. I mean, you were scamming men on RuneScape at 13. That's very like. Yeah, my name was Jessica. Yeah. And I was a, I think I, I think my ASL was um, 15 female SoCal. Mm, SoCal, that was a nice touch. I was just manifesting. I always wanted to be a SoCal girl. Yeah. And now you literally are. <laughs> Above Sunset Strip, the hills are the way. But since you started to make those changes in your life, like your identity and expression, like have you noticed a change like in your mental state because of it? Or do you just feel... It's hard to say because I've made a lot of changes. You know, like with my sobriety, I exercise now, like which is a new thing for me. I Like there's a lot of different things that are that I'm doing, like different healthier practices that I'm doing daily that have greatly improved my life so it's mm -hmm. hard to really pinpoint it down to just one thing but like one thing I can say is that like my daily anxiety levels are much lower I, I don't feel panicked about it anymore I, I feel happy with my decisions and I feel content with my life and I feel proud of who I am and at 30 years old like I'm actually just so thankful for that because I really never thought I would just a Update everyone now. What's the current name, age, sex, location? 30, female, SoCal. What do you, what do you go by outside of drag? Do you just got Cammy? Is this... I don't know. It's so weird. I have no desire to legally change my name because I think Cameron is such a cute name. And whether I was going to be born a boy or a girl, that was the name my mom had chosen for me. So it seems silly to change it. Yeah. It's, it, it doesn't bring you like dysphoria. dysphoria. Yeah. yeah. Um, cause Cameron Diaz is just one of my like biggest icons. Mm -hmm. Love her. Yeah. So if my, if Cameron is cunty enough for Cameron Diaz, I, who am I to fight it? You know? Yeah. We're almost at the end here. I only have one more question for you. Probably the most important. Why are you so obsessed with red dye number 40? <laughs> How does she? Okay. That you got from my Twitter. I, I have so. a deep hatred for red dye number 40. I'm very against it, but I'm also obsessed with it at the same time. Like, it's so crazy. It's the one thing that I'm allergic to, but it's the one thing I crave the most in this world. Oh, it's an allergy thing. Mm-hmm. Um, Why do you if, crave it so much? Because you can have it? Well, you know, that's what the doctors told my mom when I was a child. They were like, she's going to just crave it forever. Mm -hmm. um, but... As soon as I eat a like a flaming hot Cheeto or something, like it shuts my brain off and I'll just diso disassociate and I'll have a really hard time focusing. And I think that's why I like it because sometimes it's nice to turn my brain off. But I also hate it and I also think that it should be banned from all food in the US because I've had a flaming hot Cheeto in Australia and in the UK and they don't use the red dye in them and they taste exactly the same, maybe even a little better and your fingers don't turn bright red for three days. So I, I don't know a lot of people that have a uh, personal beef slash obsessions with uh, food colorings, but yeah. Red dye number 40. I'm coming for you, bitch. Mm -hmm. Well, on that note, that is the end of my card and the end of the time that we have today. But before you go, I did want to give you something. <gasps> this is a gift for 14 year old Farah from 2007. This is the best of taste of chaos Two 
because this is specifically the 2007 version because that was the year that you got to go see that tour. That was my first mm -hmm. emo show I ever went to. Mm -hmm. It was um, Under Oath. Uh, Chiodos. Chiodos. Um, 30 Seconds to Mars. Seosin. Mm -hmm. Oh my God! It should, it should be all on there too. But yeah, it's, it was, it, that one was not an easy one <laughs> to find. But yeah, 2007, Taste of Chaos. It's a little piece of memory to take home with you because no matter what changes you go through in life, you have to remember where you came from and remember that you ain't shit and you never be shit. But you will at least have <laughs> the music to remember the best of times. Oh. But yeah. I love this. <laughs> so you're back on social media, though. You're hitting it again. You're coming back strong. Where can people find you? Do we have any shows coming up? Do you, are you more socials that are active? What's your RuneScape handle? Where can they find you at? <laughs> um, you guys can find me uh, on Instagram at my original handle, at Fair Eyes. I'm not really posting much on Twitter anymore since Elon Musk took it over. It just feels like a dark place, but y'all can still follow me at Fair Eyes. Mm. Um, You're not super active on X? I'm launching my Twitch channel soon, so uh, it's also going to be under the same username. If it's out when this is published, then y'all will see it. If not, mm -hmm. it's coming soon. And uh, TikTok, um, I'm not allowed to have Moan anywhere on my name or profile because Moan is a bad word on TikTok. So um, the username is, I think, Fairized again. Mm -hmm. But you can't search pheromone, so. Well, I mean, with, uh, you know, your new identity, you can just change the spelling of moans. Oh, M-O-N-E. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and you can find me right here on this channel. Make sure to like, comment, and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And join us next time whenever we have somebody else. And yeah. Thank you so much for having me, Maddie. Thank you, by the way. This you, was so special. Thank you for making time in your busy schedule. You know, I know you got a lot of us sitting at home and playing RuneScape. So, you know, thank you for <laughs> taking the time. You shady bitch. But yeah. <laughs> Bye, guys. Cut. Done. Give It To Me Straight is brought to you by Moguls of Media, a.k.a. Mom. Hosted, produced, and edited by me, Maddie Morphosis. With audio editor, Marco Padilla. Executive produced by Willem Belli, Alaska Thunderfuck, Big Dipper, and Joe Cilio. M. Oh. M. Mom!